The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. In the spring of 2020, the United States and various state governments implemented what Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito called unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty. Whether these measures actually slowed the spread of COVID and saved lives is a question that economists are currently investigating. We do know that these measures closed non-essential businesses across the country, thousands of which never reopened and restricted religious and personal freedom. To understand how these policies emerged, we must understand the legal process that was used to implement them, the state emergency power laws. And if we don't like the measures imposed in 2020, which in some cases extended into 2021, citizens should ask their lawmakers to change the emergency power laws. Joining me today on eConversations is S.T. Karnick. He's a senior fellow with the Heartland Institute and also a publications director for Heartland. ST has written hundreds of op-eds in newspapers, magazines, and, web and for websites across the country, as well as authoring many reports for the Heartland Institute. He's joining me today to talk about Heartland's research on emergency powers that was published in a, a report that they titled, Governors, Not Gods, and which critically examined the good and the bad in these laws. Well, welcome to eConversation, Sam. Thank you, Dan. So let, let's get started here because uh, these, you know, for, for many people, these restrictions, these stay-at-home order, business uh, closures, uh, seemingly came almost out of nowhere in, in the spring of, of 2020. And, you know, they, in one sense, though, they didn't come out of no, nowhere because there was some law on, laws on the books at the state level that, that allowed this. So we call these emergency powers laws. So tell us a little bit about these, these laws that, that states have. Like, when did they come about and you know, what, what were they there for originally? Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, the, the laws came about really because there, there were, uh, you could have wars, you could have uh, uh, disease outbreaks and the like. And states wanted to have it uh, covered that if something should happen and uh, the government needs to respond quickly, then it has the ability to do so. Now, under the Constitution, the states have what are called police powers. So they have the right to decide things uh, such as what is a, what is a crime uh, and, and what is uh, an emergency. And so these laws came up actually more to, I think, to limit each state than to be expansive. However, they have to be sufficiently vague and flexible to allow the government to act. So what you had in place were laws that would uh, allow the government to act in an emergency. They're a bit vague on what, often a bit vague on what an emergency is and what exactly the government could do. Now, one of the things that will be important is when we get into some of the details uh, of these laws is that uh, state legislatures aren't always in session. Many of them are part-time and, and they, they don't, uh, they, they aren't in session all the time like say 
Congress seems to be. And that ends up being a bit of a, an issue when we think about the separation of powers. But, but tell us a little bit about, you know, or remind us, like, uh, some of the states and how they have these part-time legislatures. Well, that's an important point, is that the, the lawmakers are not professional lawmakers, typically. They're not professional politicians. They become that when they move to the next level. Uh, but the point is that it's exactly as you said, that in, in many states, they don't even meet, the, the legislature doesn't even meet every year. And or in some states and in most in, in many states, there are uh, very, very brief terms for the legislature. It may be anywhere from three months to five months. The rest of the time, the governor is, and the uh, other executive officers of the state are somewhat on their own, uh, required to follow the law as it stands and not necessarily as the state legislature would like it to be. Now we have a, a in in my uh, home state of Indiana, we had a situation where the governor declared uh, an emergency, and he kept extending it, and the state legislature was was out of session, and there was nothing they could do about it, and there was uh, uh, quite a bit of pushback about it, but that was the way it was, and the governor was uh, allowed to do what he wanted to do. What happened then was that this year when the state legislature met, they passed a law say, saying that the uh, governor's uh, emergency powers have to be, uh, uh, have, have, have a limit, a time limit on them, and that they have to be, uh, any extension has to be affirmed by the state legislature. And their way, their way around this problem was to, was to declare that if the uh, that the, the legislature would just meet in, as an emergency session and decide on whether to extend the rule. That was uh, found uh, that was found constitutional uh, by the Marion County uh, judge uh, who oversaw the, the court case which followed, which was brought by Governor Holcomb privately and not by the attorney general, who in fact argued against it. So these, these were former rivals for the, <laughs> the governorship. So what happened then was, of course, the uh, governor's people appealed it. And then the state uh, Supreme Court said that, no, it's, it's against the Constitution. The Constitution says the governor may call a special session under X circumstances. But the Constitution does not say that only the governor may call a special session. It does not put any limits on how long the state legislature can meet or when it can meet. It only says that you, you can't adjourn it for more than three days and you can't, uh, and it has to start at a certain point in the year. But it's entirely up to the state legislature to decide when it meets. So that was a, a, a false view of the constitution. I don't know if they can go anywhere beyond this though because the US Supreme Court typically doesn't interfere in these things. No, so that's an example. <laughs> and, and, and so when we look across the country, um, you know, th there was a wide range I have more than 40 states. I think 43 states had some variation of a, a stay at home order, but there was pretty wide variation uh, across states about how extreme some of these measures were, how long they stayed in place. What were some of the, you know, worst examples of, of you know, possibly abuse of um, 
you know, executive powers uh, uh, by the, the governors uh, across the state, across the different states. Obviously, right. Obviously, the, one of the most horrifying and egregious is the deaths of 13,000 people whom Governor Cuomo of New York ordered to be sent into, because he ordered people who had COVID, who were uh, of uh, over the, uh, you know, elderly to be put into nursing homes. And so that spread COVID through the most vulnerable population very rapidly. 13,000 people died as a result of that order. Now that is obviously an appalling thing. And the, the state legislature was, was disgusted by it, uh, rightly so. And the, one of the elements that is really interesting is that they, they could not get information from Cuomo's office. They could not get real information from Cuomo's office about what was happening. That Cuomo's office simply lied and said that there were fewer deaths, that far fewer deaths than were actually happening. So that is obvious. That's one where the the cure is so much worse than the disease itself. It's it's just truly horrifying. But then you had things uh, where the local governments, in their execution of the lockdown orders, uh, the lockdown orders were basically stay at home unless you have some important business to do that's going to help your neighbors somehow, you have to stay at home. So places like California, where it's it's sunny down in Southern California and and uh, there's really not much uh, not much risk of of dying of COVID if you're 32 years old and in decent health. And people were being arrested for literally for for sitting on the beach. And uh, people in, in Washington state were arrested for going to parks with their children. And this and, and some of the video clips that you can find are, 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 are quite uh, startling that the uh, although they shouldn't be because we've we've seen uh, lots of uh, egregious behavior by authorities in recent decades. But this, these are the kinds of events that I think characterize how dangerous uh, vague emergency laws can be and how dangerous they are when you don't have any fallback for the people to make choices about these things. And the people do that through their state legislatures. And, and that, that gets into a good point, I, I think, as well. And that is, like, if you happen to live in a state where the governor did some reasonable things, like Governor DeSantis in Florida, you know, it seemed to, to govern in, in a much light hand, lighter hand fashion, and many people praised uh, his, his behavior. Just because you had a good uh, a governor who didn't uh, abuse these author these powers this time, doesn't mean you shouldn't take a, t a close look at your state emergency powers laws, because you might, you know, in public choice economics, we talk about it's the the process more than the people. We don't want to rely on or hope that we have good people in place if, if they have rules in place that could allow them to take some bad policies, right? Absolutely right. Think if Charlie Crist were, were governor of Florida, what it would have been like, or or one of the uh, Democrats who, who preceded uh, Governor DeSantis, it would have been a very different thing. It would have looked much more like New York. And it's interesting because the, now first of all, there, there were all 50 states um, did declare emergencies. 43 of them declared lockdowns or stay-at-home orders and mask mandates and the like. Uh, but, but that's the whole point, is that some states did not uh, do that, did not lock down. And when you look at the numbers, 
the lockdowns had no effect on the spread of COVID and COVID deaths. They had a huge effect on two important things, on overall economic activity and economic growth and on school children's learning. Uh, when teachers said, uh, really at the behest of the teachers' unions, which I think were just using their power, uh, misusing their power, let's say. But uh, the, the, the children were forced to stay at home. They lost a lot of learning time. And, and as is well known, this is well documented, that when children are, are out of school or out of education, doesn't have to be at school, you could homeschool, but when they're not learning for a significant period of time, what they've already learned disappears, dissipates. And just again, before we get into some of the, the specifics uh, of, of the different uh, laws and what you know you might want to recommend as a, a law, um, it, many uh, proponents of limited government, small government, are, are very aware of what we call the, the crisis in Leviathan uh, uh, narrative. Uh, it was put forth by economist Robert Higgs and a, a number of other uh, people, legal scholars as well. And, and if, if you're aware of that narrative, then you're, you're looking at any emergency situation very, very differently than maybe somebody who isn't. So if you could tell us a little bit about what this uh, idea of, of crisis in Leviathan uh, uh, is about. Well, uh, lots of people have observed in the past that war is the engine of growth of government and of authoritarian power. And it's interesting that that's why there are so many wars on uh, other things, things other than other countries, such as the war on poverty or, or a variety of wars, the moral equivalent of war, as, 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 as many uh, uh, crusades, government crusades have been described. And that's, that's exactly the truth, is that when you can call something an emergency and say, this state, city, nation won't survive unless we do X, then you can do X and uh, people won't catch on until later. Now, why would governments do that? Well, the reason they do that is because the more power they have, the more they get. They have, uh, if they have more power, they can move into the private sector and get nice, uh, nice jobs later, uh, influencing the government to do even more. And the other thing is that just being in power is in itself uh, something of a, uh, a, a pleasure. And being able to, to, uh, to push your power over people, I think is extremely pleasurable to many people. And if you look at a governor like Cuomo, his, his stardom that he uh, achieved were receiving an Emmy Award for his uh, for his uh, conversations on on uh, TV on on COVID is emblematic of that problem that a governor feels that oh I have power I'm I'm doing great things and here's the proof whereas a governor like Nome of of uh, South Dakota or DeSantis of Florida uh, has a, a a wiser view, I think, of government, which is that everything they do uh, can be undone later, and everything th uh, except the consequences of what they do. So if you take kids away from school for a year and a half, those consequences are there for good. And then somebody later can can do even worse. So 
whatever you choose to do is going to set a precedent for the next one. And just one final thing before we talk about some of the, the structure of these laws is that uh, many politicians who impose these stay-at-home orders and other things on, uh, on uh, folks then went out and violated them themselves. And so there is a there is a lot of like a lot of examples of this like rank hypocrisy in one sense. Like you know, well everybody else needs to stay at home, but I don't have to. And so that was another part of this too, right? Well, yes, it was. It simply it simply proved the hypocrisy and the unworkability of these laws. When when Governor Whitmer's uh, husband uh, went went to a, a big party. That just that showed two things. One, it showed the arrogance of the executive of that state. But it also showed that the the law itself, that the declaration itself and the limitations that were be, being put on and the way they were being enforced was unfair and unnecessary. And so when when her husband went to a party, they're basically acknowledging that, yeah, you can go to parties. It's okay. We know that. So why are you doing this? Uh, there, that's a that's a, a place for, for a later discussion, I think. <laughs> so okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about now uh, Hartland's report on, on governors, not guys, because it, it uh, offered some suggestions or, or some uh, recommendations, both some some of the good and then some of the bad of state uh, emergency power law. So. You know what? What would be a desirable if if, if we could uh, if people could go out there and try to pass a law? Like what would be some desirable features of a uh, uh, emergency powers law? That's that's, uh, that's a great question. That really is central to the to the matter. That you have to be able to to make sure that the people are ruling. So. You have to uh, you have to make sure that uh, these emergency laws are not uh, infinitely expandable, uh, extendable, and that the, the and that they require the consent of the state legislature. So we have uh, we published these um, these concepts. Uh, you have the states should have resolutions to immediately nullify an emergency proclamation by resolution. They should also uh, allow resolutions to nullify an emergency proclamation after a certain length of time by resolution. So this is 14 days, 30 days, seven days. Uh, so you could have uh, both houses of a legislature could do that or just one house uh, so that every every uh, level of or every part of uh, the power structure has to agree in order for that resolution to stay in place. Meaning if anyone decides it's not right, then it doesn't go. So you can have a resolution that requires the governor to call a special section, a, excuse me, a special session of the legislature to approve of an emergency proclamation if the legislature is out of session. That's the, uh, that's a, a part of what happened in, in Indiana where the legislature was not in session and it happened in other states. And they they couldn't call a special session according to the previous and now current uh, interpretations of the state constitution, which I believe are are wrong. I've read it this morning, and it doesn't say only the governor can call a special session. It just it specifies that the governor can, but it also says quite directly that they have they have the authority to decide when they're going to meet. So, but passing a resolution or a law that makes that clear 
is is really uh, is really worthwhile. The other thing is you could have an interim committee or a group of legislatures that would extend or reject any emergency proclamation. So in some states, for example, you uh, there's a legislative committee that is uh, that has members of both houses of the legislature, and it might be a dozen people. It might be. 20, but they would have the authority under the statute to meet and to decide whether to uh, extend a resolution. The other thing is impose specific limits on the executive authority. So you say that the governor can't unilaterally close businesses or close houses of worship, shut down freedom of the press, the right to bear arms. It's very interesting that that in, in some states it was, yeah, the, the churches couldn't, op couldn't open or they were limited to uh, uh, say 15 or 25 people in a, in a uh, sanctuary that could hold a thousand. Um, that is absolutely unconstitutional. There's no justification for that. And, and that's the kind of thing that you can uh, put statutes into law that will clarify that and, and make it explicit, even though you shouldn't have to do that. The problem is, if you give a governor enough wiggle room, they'll wiggle through anything. And so these 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 approaches give you ways of making sure that if there's an emergency declaration, um, that the governor has the power to do that. That's that's okay. But if there's an emergency declaration, the people through their representatives should have the right to say. Okay, the emergency's over now. One thing many governors did was they, uh, uh, and, and Governor Whitmer did this, and this was really very hinky to say the least, is that you simply re, uh, you, you declare a new emergency. You say, okay, this this is not from the governor; it's coming from the state, uh, the, the state's Department of Health. So now the the State Department of Health declares an emergency. If your state law doesn't make it explicit that only the governor can can declare an emergency and only declare it or extend it and or extend it with the consent of the legislature, then you're leaving yourself open to these kinds of, of problems. One way to describe, you know, I think, to, to, to put what you're, you're saying here is that it's really important that we preserve the separation of powers. The separation of powers that you know, we have a legislature and a, an executive or a governor. We've got to make sure that that still is in place during the uh, emergency times. We still need that, that balance of power. Going back to your question, going back to your earlier question, that is central to the, to the matter, which is that the, the government uh, there's always going to be some urge to uh, to steal power. Uh, that's that's a human thing, and and public choice theory is spot on in that regard. And that's why you create separation of powers. The way our form of government is supposed to work, in fact, is that each each uh, each part of the polity has veto power, so that the if the executive uh, wants to do something. Uh, it has to go through the legislature. Okay, the legislature writes the law, the executive uh, executes the law. The court decides whether it's constitutional. Now, the way it's supposed to work is unless all three agree on something, it doesn't happen. The government doesn't do it. Uh, they're just not permitted. So if the legislature doesn't pass a law, the governor can't just say, oh, here's what I'm going to do, and that's that. And then the court can't say later, 
uh, yeah, it's okay with us. We don't mind. The legislature didn't pass a law. It's not law. It's not legal. It's not legitimate. And it's not right. And I mean, you know, another thing that the, the title of your of Heartland's report, A Governor's Not Gods, I think is also good because it also reminds us that no government official is infallible. And, and in fact, you know, not, o- not only are they limited in their knowledge and their ability to, to make decisions for everybody, I mean, a lot of times we, we're going to end up with better decision-making, especially more representative decision-making, when you involve more people, when the governor has to bargain with the legislature. You know, sometimes if the governor is on, on you know, planning to do something that's going to end up being really bad, like you know, the example of uh, Governor Cuomo in New York and the nursing homes, Sometimes having to talk to other people and have somebody say, "Oh, that's a terrible idea." I mean, that, that's that's part of what we also get out of the separation of powers, right? Absolutely right. Governors are not gods in that they don't have that legitimately derived power to just do whatever they want. But they're also not gods in that they don't. Ha- they're not omniscient either. They don't have the knowledge to make these choices on their own, as uh, Governor Cuomo so vividly demonstrated. And that is the, the, uh, one of the big reasons that you must have veto power over anything government does. The more veto power you have, the less government you have, the better off you'll be. Yes, we do need police powers, and and that is reserved to the states, quite rightly. Uh, states need to be able to decide what is what is disorderly conduct and what is uh, uh, damage to one's neighbors, and they need to uh, enforce those laws. Ironically, they didn't do that during this period. During the COVID period, people were marching in the streets, tearing down statues, burning buildings looting businesses, rioting, murdering one another, setting up autonomous zones within the state that that simply declared, we're not going to follow any of your laws, you creeps, and so on and so forth. So they didn't actually execute their police powers properly, and they clearly executed them uh, according to whim. And a god would not do that. And just one other thing is like, you know, not only when you, when you have command and control, another thing that also tends to happen is centralized command and control with a governor making dictates. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case, but a lot of times you do end up with one size fits all. You end up with, with one set of rules that get imposed on everybody. And, you know, I think John Tamney, the business writer, made this point repeatedly during COVID. We still need to have experimentation, even when we're like dealing with a virus to see like what can work to, to help contain it, what, what can allow businesses to possibly reopen. You know, it, 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 we still need some experimentation going on, right? That's the idea of states being laboratories of democracy, and they, they were that. We, we learned a lot about uh, government action and is in particular in emergencies, but the, the efficaciousness of government action as a whole, uh, what can governments do successfully and what can't they do? And I think a, an important point that you brought up there is that, uh, or, or a gloss on it, is that when you have uh, a, a government that is uh, overweening in the amount of power it wields, what it's going to have to do is to wield it unfairly. They're going to prosecute some people, they're going to, they're going to make some people go home, and they're going to let others get away with it. 
And that is perhaps part of the intent to have a, a two-tiered society. But when the rule of law is being flouted in that way by the government itself, you're asking people, you're, you're, you're inviting people to go out in the streets and do whatever they want. So you end up with the worst of both worlds. You end up with oppressive government and violence and anarchy and lawlessness. We're near the uh, end of our time, so I just want to say, in, in closing, is there anything you, you'd like to add or, or, or add to our discussion here? Uh, thank you. I, I would say that watch your government. Make sure that the rules that you have in place limit government. We don't have a problem with not having enough government. We have a problem with limiting our government because government is made of human beings, not gods. They're not always right, and they're not always smart. So make sure that you, the people, that we, the people, are working to limit what government can do to us because what looks good today will be wielded by someone tomorrow that does not have the same ideas as you. And talking about this important topic with us. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 